Welcome to Sunny in Seattle with your host, Sunny Joy. And coming up on today's show, Sunny's guests will be Dr. Eben Alexander and Karen Newell. So tune in and hear about Dr. Alexander's incredible near-death experience and his latest book with Karen Newell, Living in a Mindful Universe. The three of them will be discussing the next phase of Dr. Alexander's journey to understand the true nature of consciousness. And now I welcome your host for the day, Sunny Joy. And welcome, welcome everyone to Sunny in Seattle from Petaluma. Uh, I'm your host, Sunny Joy McMillan, and we're here every Friday from 9 to 10 a.m. on Alternative Talk 1150 AM KKNW out of Seattle and also 103.3 KPCA in Petaluma, bringing you amazing guests and resources that will help you create a life filled with joy, peace, freedom, and purpose. It is radio that positively shines. And if you can't catch the show live, you can always access show archives, which are found at 1150kknw.com. And the show is also available on iTunes and Podcast One to go back and listen to old shows. Uh, You can find out more about me uh, at my website, goldenoversoul.com. And uh, Benny, how's it going up in Seattle? It's very nice up here. Great day in store for us. And uh, yeah, nothing much more to report. We're getting uh, ready for the old Halloween. So I'm building my, I know you're going to be missing it this year, but I'll send photos. Yeah. Well, I think it's been a long time since I've actually been in the studio for that. But then that means on first Friday next week with Alessandra, we will learn all about it. Now, are you revealing what you're doing as your costume or is this a surprise? Still not going to do it. You know, still not going to do it. I'm very (laughs) secretive with my uh, building and uh, what my Halloween outfit it will be. So or my costume, I should say. So it is almost in. It's almost completed, by the way. So I'm ahead of schedule. Oh, that's awesome. (laughs) (laughs) So excited. Because, you know, we do it big here. That's why. Exactly. Yes. Well, Oh, I am. Um, I was looking at the weather the other day, and I mm-hmm. saw that you guys had had like eight or so days of rain. Yeah, and uh, normal. Yeah, first I'm here, so yeah. sorry. I know that's. The, I have to say <laughs> now that's you're sorry because nice you're not thing. here anymore, right? Yeah, <laughs> makes sense. <laughs> I know. Well, I have to say this is like going in. We there's many things we miss about Seattle, but going into the fall when we heard about that, we we're like, oh, we are a little bit glad to be in Petaluma right now. <laughs> Although, you know, I I want to acknowledge there mm-hmm. are some fires that have started fast and furiously, and um, this is our first time being down here yeah. so um yeah that's that that of course is something to be it's aware tough. of down it's here tough, that yeah. is apparently not happening in washington washington right now can't we work together we can take our water and put out your fires i mean just come on i, mean, I know that would be pretty awesome yeah, well, right. we will hope that we don't have uh hope that these are contained quickly and and do not yeah. affect um near as many people as mm-hmm. have been affected in past years but um, anyway, um, so Benny, we'll look forward to checking in about your Halloween costume and good luck on winning the office wide competition on that. I know it's a tough competition, but yeah, right. given that you're a three time title holder, no, I no, have no, confidence. no. Well, three time title, yes, back to back, too. So I'm going for my third. I'm going for a three peat. <laughs> Thanks for keeping the stats for me, by the way. Okay. Rub yeah. it in. Well, we're proud of you. We're pr- hey, how many people have won it as many times as you? How about that? Uh, that's a good question. I'm going to have to go back and look. <laughs> Well, uh, so we will check back in next week, and good luck, Benny. Thanks.
Okay, so uh, before we jump into uh, in, uh, welcoming our awesome guest today, um, I just want to do a quick disclaimer here for KPCA that the views expressed here are not necessarily the views of Petaluma Community Access, KPCA Radio, or its board of directors, volunteers, staff, or underwriters. Um, and so with that, I want to welcome back to the show Dr. Eben Alexander and welcome for the first time his partner, Karen Newell. Um, so I'll give you a little bit of background information on each of them, um, and then we will bring them on and uh, talk about their latest uh, project together, which is a book called Living in a Mindful Universe. So Dr. Eben Alexander, who has been on the show before, was an academic neurosurgeon for over 25 years, including 15 years at the Brigham and Women's Hospital, Children's Hospital, and Harvard Medical School in Boston. He has a passionate interest in physics and cosmology. He is the author of the New York Times number one bestseller, and it was on the list for quite some time. Um, that number one bestseller was Proof of Heaven, which told the story of his trans transcendental near-death experience in 2008 during a week-long coma from an inexplic inexplicable brain infection. He is also the author of The Map of Heaven and, of course, co-authored the book today, Living in a Mindful Universe, that we'll be discussing. Uh, the website to find out more is ebenalexander.com. That's ebenalexander.com, and that's E-B-E-N. And Karen Newell, uh, she has spent a lifetime seeking wisdom through esoteric, te esoteric teachings and first hand experience exploring realms of consciousness. She empowers others by demonstrating how to connect to inner guidance, achieve inspiration, improve wellness, and develop intuition. She is the co-founder of Sacred Acoustics, which we'll be talking a bit about today, and co-author with uh, Dr. Alexander of Living in a Mindful Universe. And the website to find out more there is sacredacoustics.com. That is sacredacoustics.com. Uh, so welcome back, Dr. Alexander, and welcome for the first time, Karen. Well, Sonny, thanks so much. It's great to be back on with you. Yes, hello. Hi. Well, so just I'm sure that many of our listeners, if they didn't even hear uh, when you were on the show previously, they have heard of your book or have read your book, uh, Dr. Alexander, Proof of Heaven. And so I just, to bring us up to speed for purposes of our conversation today around living in a mindful universe, what do listeners need to know about your experience? Well, I think the most important thing is um, the experience when you get into the scientific features of it, the medical details and all of that, uh, which have been now provided in a case report that came out in November 2018 in Journal of Nervous and Mental Diseases by three physicians who were not involved in my care, but who were shocked by the degree of recovery I had and, and that I could have had any kind of conscious experience at all when my brain was so besieged by uh, bacterial uh, men meningoencephalitis. And that article just supports so much more of why this story is of great interest to the scientific community. Uh, it really was a perfect model for human death, uh, given the documented damage to my neocortex during the week I spent in coma back in November 2008. I should have had no experience at all. And yet what I had was the most profound, ultra-real experience I've ever had. And in a setting where neuroscientists would tell you that my brain was way too inactivated to have any support any kind of dream or hallucination. That's why this story is so extraordinary. Now, for me, uh, the reason it's important, the reason we wrote the third book together, uh, is that uh, I'm a scientist, and I've, I've had to explain this from a scientific perspective. Um, and that journey has taken me far and wide into uh, 
you know, consciousness and, and what it's all really about and what are our powers within consciousness. And, and of course, meeting Karen, I met her in November 2011, and I was already realizing at the time how important the philosophical position of idealism was, whether you're talking about quantum physics or neuroscience of consciousness, philosophy of mind, the hard problem of consciousness, what have you. Uh, every bit of it points to our getting a much better understanding of consciousness. And Karen had spent her whole life as an idealist, realizing the power of the mind over matter. Uh, and not only that, she had also cultivated this very profound sense of kind of heart consciousness, that very uh, purely loving awareness that I had encountered, as have millions of others who have had near-death experiences, and yet she was living that. And so uh, this newest book, Living in a Mindful Universe, is all about where this world is headed. I mean, it's extraordinary, the scientific revolution that is upon us now about the nature of consciousness, which opens up tremendous possibilities, not only for the reality of the afterlife, but also of reincarnation. And all of this supported by modern science. So it truly is a revolutionary and very exciting time that we live in, uh, where for so much that we believe for centuries and even millennia, we find out is just not quite so. And uh, the realities of, of the truth where this is leading us is very empowering for human beings and offers tremendous hope and optimism for where this world can go. I love that positivity. I actually have, uh, I will read this later in the show, but there's a passage that I want to read from the last chapter that I just think is so powerful because for so many people looking out into the world today, they would say, how can you be so uh, encouraged by what you're finding? There's so much chaos, so much trauma, so much sadness. But I I am much in, like you, uh, Karen and Dr. Alexander, um, I see so much hope and, and discovery of so much potential. So I can't wait to share that. But before we even dive in deeper, you know, as you mentioned, so you had this experience in 2008, which really did set you on a journey to explore the nature of consciousness and where it came from. And then, as you mentioned, Karen had spent a lifetime coming at it from a little bit different perspective. And so, Karen, I would love to hear from you. You know, uh, how did you tell us a little bit about your journey and then how your two journeys uh, coincided? And of course, the sacred acoustics is a piece of that. Well, I um, grew up as a what I think of as just kind of an average Western American trying to get by in the world and being raised in a Protestant family. And when I wondered those questions that so many of us think about, you know, why are we here? What is our purpose? I wasn't really getting satisfactory answers from my religious or secular community parents, teachers, no one could really answer that question to my satisfaction. And I was very curious about it all. What What is the whole purpose of us even existing? And so without those satisfactory answers, as I got a little older, I started exploring other types of spiritual traditions, other ways of looking at the world. And I exposed myself to a rather large library, really, of different ways of looking at the world, whether it was theosophical texts, anthropology, Posophy, Kabbalah, uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls, anything that would talk about our spiritual sort of existence from a different angle was fascinating to me. And I eventually realized uh, so many of these traditions, while they seem to contradict themselves, other in other ways, they were uh, in agreement on a lot of things. And those are what fascinated me, the universal truths, the things that all the traditions sort of talked about as being the truth. And 
one of those was that we have a soul. There's a part of us that's not physical. And I wanted to know a lot more about that. And reading about that sort of, you know, takes you so far. But eventually, I realized that in order to truly understand all of this, I needed to have personal experience. I wasn't someone who could naturally sort of, uh, you know, connect to the spirit world. It wasn't like that for me. It was actually very challenging. And I set about learning all different ways to sort of kind of really just get in touch with that greater part of myself. I hate to call it a specific word because it almost categorizes me into a particular belief system. And I kind of pride myself on not identifying with just one belief system. I believe all of them have some truth to, to them and that we can all kind of come at the world from a different place. But what Evan and I really want to um, have an effect on in the secular world, especially, is this idea that we are more than our physical bodies. And in the secular world, that materialist paradigm is so prevalent. And we want to just deny the existence of spirituality. Now, I completely understand why we want to keep specific religions out of our secular world. But if we can acknowledge that there's more to us than our physical body, that is an excellent first step. And in fact, when I first met Eben, we were both exploring uh, using sound as a way to interact within our consciousness. And I knew he had had a near-death experience. His book wasn't out, uh, but I didn't really know much about it. So I'm just making conversation. And I say, well, what is the what, what, did, what did you learn as a result of your near-death experience? Because I knew that people usually learned some profound spiritual lesson. And he says to me, the brain doesn't create consciousness. And I was kind of confused. And I said, well, why would anyone think that it does? Right. Because I had already, through my own personal experience, realized that we do have, I'll just use the word soul, we do have a higher self. We do have a part of us that is not necessarily uh, physical. And so that, of course, was the beginning of many fascinating conversations. And uh, eventually we came to write that book together. Yeah. And, and uh, it's interesting because one of the things that really stood out to me, um, and I have to say, Dr. Alexander, I resisted reading your book for a long time because my parents, who uh, identify as Christian, kept trying to get me to read it. And I, to find my own faith and to have a connection with something, a higher power greater than me, I had to leave Christianity and come back at it a different way. Um, and, and while I have great respect for many of the teachings of Jesus, I think there's been, I just have to always do the disclaimer. I think there have been some gross distortions and some things that were left out that need to be included in, you know, our New Testament, all the things like that. But that to say, so when I finally did pick up your book, fortunately, you had added the afterword at that point. Mm -hmm. And it really went into some deeper things. And one of the things that really stood out to me was that coming back from your experience, you could no longer call this higher power God. You called it Om because it wasn't a, 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 you know, a man on a white cloud with a long beard. It was something so much greater than that that really was so indescribable. What's the word? Um, um, oh, gosh, I, I'm losing my, ooh, oh, well, it'll Which come to me more later. profound. Ineffable, more that's fundamental. the word. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think it's interesting that in your journey to reconnect with that realm 
and to find that place again that you visited during your coma that you explored sound to do that. And can you speak a little bit more about why you chose OM as your descriptor for the higher power and then how that factors into uh, tell us a little bit about the sound work that you all do with sacred acoustics uh, and how, what, how binaural beats work, that kind of a thing. Well, Om was probably the most kind of fundamental ground state of the whole experience. It was the thing I remembered from the highest levels I went. Those who've read Proof of Heaven will realize that I cycled through these, these realms, everything from the primitive course, unresponsive earthworm eye view realm up through this brilliant portal into the ultra real gateway valley with all of its earth-like features, but also spiritual features like the swooping orbs of angelic choirs above. And then music provided yet another portal. Music, or vibration, or frequency, what we remember as music, even though in those realms, I'm sure people realize you're not hearing with the ears or seeing with the eyes. And that's one of the reasons these experiences are so difficult to explain, is when you're having this pure conscious awareness, it's no longer filtered like our consciousness is when we're in these uh, material bodies. But Om was what I witnessed as the, basically, I would say the, uh, it was the welcome and the, the ground state of, of information in that core realm. The core realm was the infinite uh, blackness, but filled with overwhelming love, where the entire higher dimensional multiverse had been collapsed down into this complex oversphere as part of lessons. But what I remembered was that incredible healing force, that that unifying source of all existence and of all creativity, which is uh, a, an awareness of pure love, which, of course, is what seekers, journeyers, prophets, near-death experiencers have all talked about for thousands of years. And it's the same force. Uh, that was another part of this, as I realized in coming back that God was a puny little human word that didn't begin to do justice to what I had encountered in that realm. But of course, as all my memories came back, because an important part about my NDE was that I was amnesic for the life of Evan Alexander, all my words and uh, language, every bit of that was deleted during the entire experience. And that was part of the brain damage and part of the lessons about how consciousness is not even created by the brain, nor memory stored there. But that alm, that was the thing I could hold to, because when I came back to this world, it is what I remember. And I, I, I knew, especially when I gave talks about this, and uh, I made some DVDs of my talks, would send them around, and I kept hearing back from people of other faiths, especially of mystical traditions. Like, I would hear back from Kabbalists, from Jewish mystics or Sufis, Islamic mystics, Christian mystics, uh, Shintoists, Zoroastrians, uh, Baha'i faith, uh, many different faiths would reach out to me about proof of heaven and say that the journey I described uh, was consistent with their deepest and most ancient teachings. And that's when I started realizing that that alm and that very oneness uh, of pure love even though some of us who are brought up in a Christian home might identify that as kind of the basis of Christianity, it turns out that love and compassion and mercy are right there at the center of, of really all the faiths um, uh, in many ways. And that's what I was talking about, was that alm uh, to me, and, and I, I described its origin as being the resonance that you'd expect in that kind of infinite dimensional space through all of eternity. But alm to me said a tremendous amount, and it's what I remembered. And so in coming back to this world, it's interesting that over the first two years after my coma, uh, I realized 
realized, of course, I read more than 100 books. I was getting deep into quantum physics and uh, everything about uh, the neuroscience of consciousness and especially philosophy of mind, things like all the evidence for non-local consciousness, that is the reality of things like telepathy, remote viewing, out-of-body experiences, past life memories in children, indicative of reincarnation, a tremendous body of evidence that was not my focal point when I was working as a Harvard neurosurgeon, but certainly was very relevant to consciousness. Uh, and what I found is within those first two years that sound could be very powerful. And that's a specific form of sound uh, that's generically known as binaural beats. I will tell you now that sacred acoustics has the most powerful form of these binaural beats that I've ever witnessed. And that's one of the reasons why I work so closely with them and, and love this work with sacred acoustics. But to cut to the chase, the reason I was attracted is because these sounds, that is slight differences to the frequencies that go to the two ears, differences that are anywhere from a fraction of a hertz or a fraction of a cycle per second up to maybe 20 cycles per second, um, that by using a differential frequency to the two ears, you do something in the lower brainstem that's very powerful. It was an effect that was first discovered in the mid-1800s by Wilhelm Heinrich Dove, who was a Prussian physicist. And then people in the late 20th century used these uh, binaural beats uh, to engender out-of-body experiences or to enhance remote viewing skills and things like that, these forms of non-local consciousness I mentioned a minute ago. And so I started working with the binaural beats and was shocked at how they allowed me to get back into my NDE. Uh, and I've, I've spent really the last uh, uh, almost 10 years now of daily meditations, uh, and of course, in the most recent years, that's always been sacred acoustics, uh, where I spend an hour, two, or maybe three a day, uh, not only returning to my near-death experience, but but um, developing my relationship with everything that I first came to know in that realm, but also dealing with all the issues of this life, with my health, with creativity, with uh, any kind of interpersonal issues with other people. I found that meditation, going within, realizing that that voice in our head, the voice of our ego, is nothing more than an annoying roommate as Michael Singer puts it in his book, The Untethered Soul. And when you learn that and learn that the voice of the ego is not really your friend in all this, but your consciousness is something far deeper than that. Your consciousness is the awareness of that voice and everything else that you're ever aware of in your existence. And that awareness uh, is not that same little stream of thoughts and that sense of ego. And so I've spent years developing a sense of the higher soul, of that connection, with the primordial mind of the universe. Uh, and that's something that our book, Living in a Mindful Universe, <clears throat> goes into great detail about, is um, uh, this revolution in consciousness, which in the scientific world, throughout the world of modern science, is shifting our focus to realizing that consciousness is fundamental. In fact, all of the physical universe emerges out of that layer, top-down causality of consciousness itself. That's why things like placebo effect actually work. Mind over matter is very real. And yet our materialist science, and that was a science I had studied so diligently for 54 years of my life before my coma, keeps saying that the physical world is all that exists and the brain creates consciousness, and yet no one on earth has ever made one step towards explaining from a materialist or physicalist position uh, how the brain does that. And the reason is it does not. 
That is a false view. Our consciousness is primordial. And, um, you know, that's something we go into in great detail, but I cannot tell you how important meditation has been in my life in uh, helping me to come to this deeper understanding. And I recommend it to every single soul out there. Go within. And uh, if you don't have a way of doing that already, uh, you know, through centering prayer or some form of meditation, uh, check out sacredacoustics.com. We'll find a tremendous amount of clues and tools and abilities to help you go very deep into transcendental conscious awareness. Yes, and I want to, you know, um, Benny, do you think this is a good time for our break? I want to, because I have a question for Karen, but I don't want to open a can of worms. But oh, go ahead and hit the question. Okay. So, uh, Karen, then I'm curious, you know, because we're talking about this journey of going within, which is, you know, living in a mindful universe is really chronicles, of course, uh, Dr. Alexander's journey to really get to the core of consciousness and uh, after his near-death experience. And, and as you explained, you came at it a little bit differently or your experience was a little different. But I wanted to highlight something from your story that I think listeners may identify with, um, that being that um, not everyone, when, when Dr. Alexander says, oh, you've got to go within and meditate or prayer. And some people, I know I have clients like this, which is why I'm saying, and I've had this experience myself, I can't meditate. My my mind is incessantly chattering. It's very uncomfortable and I can't do it. And I love that you share in this book that you had a, a hard time learning to meditate, which was part of why the the binaural beats during meditation helped lessen some of that chatter, if I understood that correctly. Can you speak to your journey around meditation a little bit more and why this sound uh, meditation has been so helpful for you? Yeah, so earlier I was saying I took lots and lots and lots of classes and learned lots of techniques and methods for exploring within consciousness. And meditation was one of those, to me, kind of scary words. And I wasn't taking meditation classes, because I didn't think I really needed to learn how to meditate. But every single class I took, at some point, the teacher would say, okay, now we're going to meditate. And I realized, oh my goodness, this is sort of a basic, really kind of primary foundation for all other kind of forms of exploration. And so while meditation was kind of a, a fearful word to me, I imagine that would be, you know, monks that had to sit in caves and do this <laughs> you know, all day long sitting cross-legged. And, and I just, you know, I'm as a Western person with a job and technology and trying to raise a daughter and I didn't have time for that. But in the end, it, meditation is key. And so just as you said, I would sit down and, and try to do this. I would follow the instructions that I found to just pay attention to my breath, close my eyes, pay attention to the breath. And when I would do this, I expected my mind to empty because that's what they would say would happen. And all I would have were these constant kind of dialogues, as Evan said, that annoying roommate. I could not shut my mind up. I was a very busy project manager and, you know, always planning. And so it was very challenging. So I was like your clients. I can't meditate. This isn't just possible. But it kept coming back. Really important foundational skills. And yes, it was sound. Sound was one of my keys and attention to the heart <clears throat> was another important key, but sound was very critical. Uh, certain types of sound really helped me to get into that sort of zone. Anything that has kind of a wah-wah sound, like a crystal bowl, a brass bowl, tuning forks, a gong, and especially this specific type of form built with 
binaural beats. And so I was very uh, fascinated by all of this. And I wanted to have experiences like Eben. I wanted to get out of my body, go meet some spirit guides, but that's not how it all begins. You really have to learn how to clear out and find uh, clarity in your inner world. And so when I first started doing this, I ran into things I didn't expect. I ran into um, sadness. I ran into loneliness. And I thought, well, I'm not lonely and sad. And what is this? But it was blocking me from getting further. And I realized, oh my gosh, I do have loneliness and sadness. It's not on the surface, but it was from events that had happened long, long ago and events that uh, had caused me to have emotional reactions that I never learned to properly process. And so they simply were stored in my system waiting to be triggered. And when many of us start to get quiet inside, that's what we run into. And so I had to learn how to sort of trigger those things, get them released. I called this uh, about two to three year period, my spiritual boot camp, <laughs> because <laughs> yeah. I was, yeah, and it was really necessary. Um, a lot of times people get, and I was one of them, very threatened by this idea of, of a daily meditation, especially when they say one to three hours a day. That <laughs> just sounds not attainable. Right. And so for me, it, meditation, um, turned out to be uh, more of, of like projects. So I would have certain things I wanted to work on, say a certain uh, emotional problem or uh, relationship or project at work, whatever it was, uh, issues with my daughter, I would kind of make that be my goal for a particular month. And then all of my uh, exploration activities were related to focusing on that problem. And for me, that really helped take away that, uh, oh, you have to do this daily or you're not doing it right. And so I split it up into kind of uh, little mini courses of my own and that really helped me. And then I would take breaks and then I would get back into it. And, and each time I would reach a deeper and deeper level. And what I now realize is that I have this what we call objective observer inside, neutral observer. My neutral observer that you practice during meditation uh, recognizing is now active pretty much all of the time. So I can go through my life and if I happen to be in a reactive mode and some bad mood starts to take over my you know, system, my observer is going, hmm, what's going on here? And I have this kind of dual awareness. And so this idea of meditation, well, in the moment of doing it as sort of an escape from the here and now, it really prepares you to deal in the here and now in a much different way. And so I can be much more gracious um, in my react in my responses rather than a, a quick, reactive, you know, hostile kind of thing in certain moments. And I've realized that triggers, things on the outside world that trigger me are really a result of something inside of me. We're used to blaming the outer world for things that cause us distress, but not all of us are distressed by the same things. And certain things inside of us are what we should be looking at. So anytime I kind of react to something in the world, I wonder, oh my gosh, there's something else in me that I need to work on. And then I set another plan for a, a meditation, you know, couple weeks of meditation or whatever skills uh, I want to apply and I tackle that issue. And so it really has turned into um, a very practical tool in the end, not at all what I originally expected, but it's it definitely is a skill that I feel 
each and every one of us need to learn at some level. And it is uh, scary sometimes to think about, but it is well worth the time. Anyone I've met who's taken the time to really apply themselves to some sort of practice ends up having benefits they never could have imagined when they first set out. And so that's what happened for me. And, and it's just, it's kind of a fear of the unknown that I encourage people to uh, find the technique that works for you because we're all slightly different. And when one thing doesn't work, you just go try something else. There are countless ways and approaches to this sort of activity. Yes, and I love that we have so much science now to back up the actual restructuring and, and the size of certain portions of our brain as, a, a, I guess, a side effect of meditation. And not to mention, I think for the greater picture here, um, just the incredible opportunity for connection with that something that is greater for, than us um, through the practice of meditation how, or stillness or prayer, how, whatever you want to use to really go inward to be able to access those places. Um, and so I'm looking at the time and it does look like a good time for our break. Um, you are listening to Sunny in Seattle. I am joined today by Karen Newell and Dr. Eben Alexander who have co-authored a new book, Living in a Mindful Universe, um, which really uh, explores the journey that Dr. Alexander as well as Karen Newell um, have taken to get to the heart of consciousness. Um, when we come back, we will dive further into the content of the book. Be back in just a few. The preceding audio was via a Skype call. I'm Dr. Anthony Lajewicz, and this is Climate Connections. On hot summer days, the shade of a big tree can provide relief, not only for people, but cows. So as the climate warms, some farmers are growing trees in their pastures. The practice, called silvopasture, helps protect the animals from heat. And it helps slow global warming because trees store a lot of carbon. Jen Halpin is director of the Dickinson College Farm in Pennsylvania, which serves as a demonstration site for silvopasture. Halpin says red oak, crabapple, and locust trees grow in the farm's pastures. She says the team chose native species that would not only provide shade, but food for the cows. The locusts shed pods. The pods are a source of protein for the cattle. But protecting young trees from the livestock has been a challenge. The students and staff put electric netting around the trees, but it collapsed under the weight of heavy snow. They had to replace it with posts and wire. But Halpin is happy the farm can serve as a living laboratory. I feel like a role that our college farm plays within our larger agricultural community is to be that site where we can trial and error without breaking the bank or the farm going under. So by sharing lessons learned, she hopes to help other farmers reap the benefits of silvopasture. Climate Connections is produced by the Yale Center for Environmental Communication. Learn more at YaleClimateConnections.org. Sunny in Seattle, radio that positively shines. 145 over 92. 180 over 111. 182 over 100. And I had a heart attack and a cardiac arrest and then a stroke. Your blood pressure numbers could change your life. A lot of people don't understand, including myself, I didn't, now I do, uh, the impact of having a stroke. My memory is shot. When I woke up, I couldn't speak. Lowering your high blood pressure could save you from a heart attack or stroke. 
If you've stopped your treatment plan, restart it, or talk to your doctor about creating one that works better for you. Start taking the right steps at manageyourbp.org. It's a new life, but I'm going to make it better. I'm coming back. Ask your doctor. Check your blood pressure. Brought to you by the American Heart Association, American Medical Association, and the Ad Council. And welcome back to Sunny in Seattle. I am your host, Sunny Joy, joined today by Karen Newell and Dr. Eben Alexander discussing their latest book together, Living in a Mindful Universe. Um, and I, I just have to say, you know, this book explores so many different topics and of course so much research in quantum physics as well as um uh you know different theories about you know our brain as a reducing valve that filter theory and of course the personal experiences of going inward and then power of prayer and the power of the heart which is one of my favorites um and then shared death experiences after death communication soul lessons there's so much here <laughs> I know we can't get into all of it. So I'm hoping you're okay if I just dive into a couple of those areas that are some of my passion projects. That's good. Yeah, let's do. Okay, awesome. So so one of the things that I really liked um, that you talk about in the book is uh, the idea of soul lessons. And I think this is particularly uh, interesting with you, Dr. Alexander, because, you know, if, if, we, if we look at the... Uh, our experience as a human on earth as a bit of a soul school, as you call it, um, that we come here, we plan our journey a little bit. We may pick our family. We may pick certain circumstances so that we are able to grow and fulfill certain potentials from a soul level. And I'm curious from where you sit, do you believe that this was your soul's plan to be the person that this happened to? Because I mean, you're a neurosurgeon, you had such a rare form of meningitis, who knows where it even came from, that most people never survive from. And it destroyed the part of your brain where scientists have always thought consciousness arises from. So it just seems to me this perfect storm of circumstances that are so serendipitous. I just am curious if you kind of view that that was part of your journey was to do this. Well, I would say that that anyone who's had a, a near-death experience, a profound uh, spiritual epiphany like that of connection with the universe, goes through the same thing. And, and for me, uh, yes, this journey was very much tailored to uh, kind of my interests, and uh, not only in this lifetime, but I now have come to believe very fully, is, is my journey showed me, uh, in no uncertain terms, we come back again and again to get this right. A soul journey happens over many incarnations, and I think that's one of the reasons people uh, have been so confused over all this, especially when we, when we go uh, believe in our dominant uh, religious beliefs um, that try and pretend that it's one incarnation, and yet what I learned after my coma is the scientific evidence for reincarnation is very strong. Anyone who wants to learn more, go to uvadops.org. That's University of Virginia Division of Perceptual Studies, an academic scientific group that has studied past life memories in children for more than six decades now. And they've identified more than 2,500 cases where the, the best ready explanation of all the data is of true reincarnation. So I think you'd have to be an absolute fool to just reject this data and ignore it. And it's clearly very, very relevant 
to human experience and to the brain-mind question and the nature of consciousness, the nature of reality. Um, so when you talk about planning these, um, these lifetimes and the challenges that we face in a lifetime, it's important for people to understand they're not doing it afresh, but they're doing it in the context of having come out of other lifetimes where they've learned and taught lessons with their soul groups. And, all, and this all improves over time. It's about kind of the grace of understanding. So in other words, this vision that we uh, subscribe to about the scientific proof for reincarnation is not one that defaults to a religious belief of it being a blind mechanistic wheel of suffering where the whole goal is to get off of it. This is quite different from that and one that I believe makes more sense and we discuss it in detail in the book. Um, but it really has to do with the fact that the challenges and hardships in life, and certainly as a doctor, I would identify illness and injury as being in those groups. Uh, what I came to realize from my journey is they're often there to help uh, lead us along a pathway of growth. So in other words, I came back realizing that you need to embrace the hardships because the hardships are actually what give us kind of direction and energy to grow. Uh, and, and a lot of that is recovering the love and importance of self, uh, recovering the love that binds us all together so that I often talk about the, the kind of win-win situation that I can get to in meditation. So, Say if I'm having a conflict with someone else, uh, I can do it higher to higher soul to higher soul in meditation, and it's a much smoother way for, for things to just start working out. When you realize how uh, we talk about the supreme illusion in the book, the supreme illusion is the fact that you look around this world and you see all these things out there, and you kind of identify as yourself and your body, and then the world outside of you. But the important thing to remember is never has that kind of conscious mental model of the outside world ever occurred in the outside world. It's always occurred within your mental space. So we've never known anything other than the inside of our own consciousness. And the more you start to realize that consciousness is universal, and it's one that's shared, not just with other humans and with all life, but with sentient life throughout the cosmos and with the universe itself, then you start to realize where all this is headed. And it's a far more uh, comforting and um, uh, uh, energizing uh, kind of way of seeing ourselves so that, for example, before my coma, I might have wondered, well, what's the value of meditation going inside my head? My consciousness is created, you know, in that three and a half pound gelatinous mass in a warm, dark bath inside my skull. <laughs> what good is going in there? Well, actually, when you realize that the the modern scientific view is that the brain is a filter that allows primordial consciousness in. That primordial consciousness is that same uh, God force of pure infinite love that I and so many other near-death experiencers and other spiritual journey journeyers throughout thousands of years have encountered. And so this meditation is just a way of going out into that primordial mind, traversing that veil, getting outside of the myth of, of here and now and of this notion of self. I will point out that in the, in the near-death experience, going back thousands of years, somewhere between 25 and 50 percent of people, depending on the series reviewed, but somewhere between 25 and 50 percent of them have a very powerful sense of a life review, where they go through the main events of their life that still harbor residual lessons for their soul to learn and teach, 
And that's where in the life review where they feel the brunt of their actions and thoughts on others around them. So your life review is not really your life review. It's a life review of all the uh, kind of people and beings that you have influenced with your actions through your life. And that's why it's so instructive. That's why it's done in that setting of infinite love and when you've often reunited with souls of departed loved ones. And it's done in that context of setting the stage for the next incarnation, where everybody comes back in, they, you reshuffle how it works, who's in what role, uh, and then further growth uh, comes from buying into that incarnation and, and believing that we're here. Uh, you know, there, There's a huge amount of the buy-in that involves forgetting that time between lives. That's important. So that just like we tend to forget our dreams, even though scientists know dreams are very, very important. You die if you don't dream for a few weeks. Um, and likewise, uh, harvesting past life memories in children, you need to do it before age six or seven, because after that, those memories are covered by natural processes, because we're not meant to remember every bit of that through our adult life. We're supposed to have some buy-in here. And that's why meditation can be so important, because it shows us reminds us of that bigger picture and allows us to see ourselves in that bigger context of multiple lives and here to learn and teach. Yes, yes. And 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 another, you've mentioned love many times through, not just in this segment, but in, in the rest of the conversation. And I think, Karen, this was somewhere that I think you were already pretty conscious of your heart's energy. And I, I am obsessed with the research that the Heart Math Institute is doing. And I loved seeing that reference in the book. Um, and, and I'm curious if you can just speak to, because as we're talking about this, not just meditation, but there are actual tangible ways that we can connect with the very powerful uh, electromagnetic energy of our heart, connect with others through that <laughs> connection through our hearts. And you were already kind of on that journey. And I'm, I'm curious if you can speak a little bit to your journey of discovering the power of the heart and how that also factors into living in a mindful universe. Right. Well, in all of my spiritual boot camp activities, one of the things that I learned was a form of Sufi heart rhythm meditation. And in the practice of doing that, they would have us imagine that we were breathing in and out of our heart in all different directions. And I thought that was a little strange until I actually started doing it. And oh my goodness, it's a very powerful uh, skill and technique to use. And it's it can be related to that heart math research so easily because in emanating from each and every one of our hearts is an electromagnetic field. And it, it emanates from the heart out into, I say, a bubble surrounding your body. And this field actually expands and contracts based on your emotional state. Now, the brain has one of these two, and we're used to the brain being in charge of everything, but the heart's electromagnetic field is much, much larger than the brain. The electric part is 60 times bigger than the brain's, but the magnetic part is 3,000 times bigger than the brain. So it actually expands and contracts based on your emotional state. So if you're really happy or joyous, you have a very, very large field. But if you're sad or angry, you have a smaller field. And like you said, the most fascinating thing to me is that electromagnetic field actually influences the people around you. They've done experiments where someone sitting across the table from someone else doing a coherence technique, which in heart math uh, language that just means generating a feeling of gratitude when they do that sitting across from someone else they actually affect their brainwave state 
and their heart rate variability. So this is going on whether we realize it or not. And lots of people wonder, well, how can I protect myself from all those other heart fields who might be angry or something? And of course, that's one thing to consider, but mine was always, how can I not affect other people in a non-positive way? So I, I call that the ultimate golden rule, right? You treat others as you would like to be treated. So keeping uh, very loving types of feelings in my heart affects people around me without having to say a word, the ultimate golden rule. But how to do this was very mysterious to me because I did not know how to generate feelings of gratitude. I could generate thoughts of gratitude, <laughs> but I didn't know how to generate a feeling that was very mysterious to me. And so I, that is another thing I had to practice. And the advice I was given is if you don't know how to feel that gratitude unbidden, you know, without having it something happen and you automatically feel it, to generate it consciously was to remember something in the past I was grateful for. And so I started to think of all the things I was grateful for. And eventually I landed on uh, a memory of puppies because when I was six years old, my mother took in a stray dog who proceeded to have puppies underneath my bed. And to me, this was just so magical. And I'm a lifelong dog lover, especially puppies. And uh, this is the memory that allowed me to feel that feeling. At first, it was just this little flicker of warm kind of feeling. And then it just grew and grew. And I was able to uh, really generate that feeling of gratitude so much that I realized it was love, actually. And that's the same kind of feeling you might have when you're, say, falling in love or something like that. It's a similar type of feeling and activation of that heart energy. And so this idea of loving myself was also something that I was thinking about. But the way when you think about loving yourself, you really just can uh, rattle off all of your positive traits or the, the way you interact with people, but you're not really loving. To love yourself is really, for me, generating that love from within. And as each of us learns how to generate that love from within by clearing our emotional traumas, by focusing on that love, we actually create a connection to that higher power you were speaking of earlier, that greater energy that's around us. And you can feel that energetics of that love so profoundly when you take the time to generate it. And this is what can get us through our days. You know, at the beginning of the conversation, Eben was talking about how we're so positive and we look around the world and it's, you know, a little crazy, especially right now. And, and the polarities that are going on in our country are very saddening to me. But I try not to get too wrapped up in the sadness of it all. What I like to think now, when I was busy clearing my emotional traumas, I had to poke at them in order to recognize them and release them. So one of the things that Evan and I discuss is that we're actually going through, I would we would say, a collective gift of desperation. And this is where you really do have to poke at the wounds so we can all see what they are so they can be released and healed. And so while you can look at all of this chaos as a, a bad thing because things don't seem calm, I think we're actually poking all the wounds that have been festering all these years and we're going to need to start to reckon with them. And I think that's where we're headed. And uh, all of us who know how to uh, stay calm within, how to keep that heart energy 
clear and positive. We will help the others around us uh, just by nature of how our bodies work. And yes. so this is what we're looking forward to in the coming months and years. You, I mean, Karen, this is just so funny. I literally had just opened the book to the passage I was going to read, which was about the uh, gift of collective desperation. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so I mean, this is a perfect way to to really bring us to a close in the show. I hope you don't mind. I'm just going to read a passage from the book. And then, um, yeah, because my last question was, all of this is amazing for an individual soul's journey and to get through a day-to-day -day life. But I feel from a 50,000 foot viewpoint, doesn't do it justice, but from a cosmic viewpoint, where does all of this fit into the larger evolution of, of humans and of our, you know, consciousness generally out there throughout all the cosmos. Okay. So I'll just read this. And I'm, I'm, these are a couple of excerpts all from the very last chapter. We are all in this together and are slowly awakening to a common goal, the evolution of conscious awareness. As we each carve our unique passage through life, our collective destiny is to live in peace and harmony, one with all fellow beings, one with the universe, healing through the infinite power of unconditional love. This is not some pie in the sky wishful thinking. It is the birthright of all sentient beings throughout all of existence. All of the seeming impediments to that destiny, especially the apparent evil and darkness in our world in the form of thoughtless homicide and suicide, conflict and warfare, and the devastation of our ecosystem through the misguided application of modern science and technology are all part of a greater plan, one that ultimately we devise together. And uh, let's see, you go on to say, this is a critical juncture in human history, much like the gift of desperation faced by individuals circling the drain of addiction. We are all potentially in the midst of a collective gift of desperation. And the final little segment I'll read here. Of course, some are not ready to embrace this truth. Whenever we face a paradigm shift, there are those who leap across and those that wait for others to build a bridge and those who plant their feet and refuse to budge. Centuries ago, some people trusted their own observation of the horizon to assert that the world was round, not flat. Some waited for astronomers and mathematicians to do experimental proofs showing that was the case. And others waited until there was complete scientific consensus with satellite photos to back it up. And I just want to say, as we get right to our final minute, thank you all for being the ones who are ready to jump first. I'm with you on this, and I'm just so excited about what you have put together here in the book we've discussed today, Living in a Mindful Universe. Um, <laughs> we have like about a minute left. Is there anything you all would like to say as we come to the end of our show? Well, I think the only thing I'd like to add is that this uh, awakening involves everyone. All souls are involved, no soul left behind. And it is absolutely imperative that, that we come to this awakening because the alternative is that I believe life on earth will simply get a whole lot worse for all the inhabitants. So it's time for us to wake up. This is all about love and kindness and compassion um, and realizing we're in this together. Yahoo, bravo. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. And with and that. Thank you, Sonny. Thank you, Sonny and all your listeners who are also taking the time to clear their inner world and find that clarity, connection, and contentment that we all can bring to this world together. All of us who do this, I, we appreciate you. Yes, yes. So I've been joined today by Dr. Eben Alexander and Karen Newell. If you would like to find out more, you can visit either ebenalexander.com or sacredacoustics.com. Thank you so much for joining us here today. It has been such a pleasure. Uh, this is your host, Sunny Joy, signing off. The preceding audio was via a Skype call.